Our second lesson for this Lord's Day comes from Paul's letter to the church in Rome. We are in chapter 14 and we'll be reading today verses 1 through 12. And again, I invite you to turn in your scriptures and follow along with me as I read. Accept him whose faith is weak without passing judgment on disputable matters. One man's faith allows him to eat everything, but another man whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. The man who eats everything must not look down on him who does not, and the man who does not eat everything must not condemn the man who does, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To his own master he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man considers one day more sacred than another. Another man considers every day alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He who regards one day as special does so to the Lord. He who eats meat eats to the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who abstains does so to the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself alone, and none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. For this very reason, Christ died and returned to life so that he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. You then, why do you judge your brother? Or why do you look down on your brother? For we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me, every tongue will confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. We come today to a portion of Paul's letter that brings the general admonitions of chapters 12 and 13 to bear on a matter of specific concern for the saints in Rome. That being said, the issue they faced is not unlike almost every other issue that congregations the world over face. For at the base of it are the conflicts that arise between those who are strong in the faith and those who are weak in the faith. Or to put it another way, there are issues that can arise due to a lack of proper understanding concerning the doctrine contained within the gospel. And these issues many times are really non-essential issues as far as the faith and the scriptures are concerned. Now, if what I have just said is about as clear as mud, let's consider the issues in Rome, and then we will extrapolate. The first issue that Paul specifically addresses is one that surrounded the issue of diet. As we have said many times, the congregation in Rome was made up of both Jew and Gentile, with the Gentiles being in the majority. 
But then there was that moment in their church history, their congregational history, when the voice of the Jewish minority was silent due to the expulsion of all the Jews from the city of Rome by an edict of Emperor Claudius. And during those years, the influence of the Gentiles would have grown to some degree within this congregation. Now, while there is not universal agreement among commentators about the particulars of this dietary issue, it cannot be denied that the Jewish contingent grew up with the understanding that certain foods were forbidden under the first covenant. The meat of certain animals was labeled as unclean for them. And it was not until the dawn of the new covenant that such prohibitions were lifted. You may remember the vision that the Apostle Peter had atop the roof of Simon the Tanner when that giant sheet filled with all sorts of unclean animals descended from heaven and the voice from heaven told Peter, Rise, kill, and eat. And he protested profusely, saying that he had never eaten anything unclean and he was not about to start now. But then the voice informed him, What God has made clean, do not call common. Well, three times that happened until Peter began to wonder what it meant, only to soon discover that God was opening Peter's mind and heart to the notion that there was a multitude of people whom the Jews once classified as unclean who were being welcomed into the family of God. But that's not the only moment when the subject of these ceremonial dietary laws was taken up in the Scriptures, for there was also that time when Jesus declared that it was not the type of food that we take in, that we eat, that makes us unclean, but actually what comes from within a man's heart. That's what makes him unclean. And then we have that parenthetical statement in Mark's Gospel that says, Thus He declared all foods clean. So, in Rome, we deduce that we have at least some Jewish believers who have been trained to avoid certain meats because of past prohibitions, and even though they have come to Christ in genuine faith, they still conscientiously abstain from eating those meats. But they weren't alone in this. The Gentile believers also had some dietary issues where meat was concerned. The majority of Gentiles came to Christ from pagan backgrounds where meat offerings were made to the false gods of Greece and Rome and they had been cautioned early on by the council in Jerusalem to avoid meat that had been offered to idols and from consuming anything in which the blood remained. Now, that guidance in Acts chapter 15 was offered in that period of time when the gospel was moving across Asia Minor and Gentiles were being welcomed into the church along with the Jewish Christians who were already there. And so there was a period of transition that required some cultural sensitivity. The leaders in Jerusalem were not pronouncing a new dietary law for all time, sort of a new commandment. But rather, they were providing guidance so as to allow a time of adjustment 
so that two very different cultural experiences could come together without creating huge difficulties that would prevent them from forming a new congregation. So in Rome, you have some Jews and some Gentiles who are wary of being disobedient unto God where meat is concerned, which caused some then to conclude that perhaps the safest approach to all this is just to become a vegetarian. I mean, you can't make a mistake in this regard if you just stick to peas and carrots. That was sort of the thinking. And so on one side of this issue, you have those who are fearful of violating some divine dietary expectation. And on the other side of the issue are those who have come to understand that because of what God has done in Christ, we are at liberty in regard to all this. They knew the full extent of Paul's statement, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. These who know that they've been liberated from all the demands of the ceremonial law are those whom Paul refers to as strong in the faith. And those who are sensitive to the issue of consuming meat he is referring to as weak in the faith. Now this issue was a very real issue for them. But it is also an issue that Paul would argue is a non-essential issue. That is, whether you believe one way or the other, it will not make one whit of difference unless you are of the opinion that a failure to hold your view means that the other person is either not a true disciple of Christ or is so ignorant as to be a bother instead of a brother. Notice what he says in verse 3. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And what Paul is saying is that those who are strong in the faith may lack grace and patience towards those who are weak in the faith and they may despise them or demonstrate contempt towards them instead of striving with them, bearing with them, helping them to grow in their understanding of the freedom that they have in Christ. On the other hand, Paul is saying that those who are weak in the faith may suffer with a sense of moral superiority towards those who eat meat. And their spiritual immaturity causes them to think that they know something that the others do not know. And their temptation is to judge those who eat meat as, being, as not being true disciples of Christ. Now in either case, at those extremes, both individuals are in error. And whenever we take issues on which the Scriptures are largely silent or silent altogether and we get dogmatic about that or legalistic, we need to realize that we are out of step with the Lord. So when there are disciples who insist on their way or the highway on a particular issue, one needs to ask, well, what do the Scriptures say about that? What evidence is there in the Scriptures for the use of medical marijuana to treat cancer patients? 
or the use of CBD homeopathic remedies. Now, I'm not arguing for one way or the other here. I'm asking whether or not a clear-cut case can be made from Scripture about these kinds of things. What evidence is there in the Scriptures for registering as a member of one political party or another or none at all and simply abstaining from all elections as some do? What are the arguments for any of those positions and do we elevate our view on that issue to a level that destroys a relationship with a brother in Christ? What evidence is in the Scriptures for baptism by immersion or sprinkling or pouring? And must it be believer's baptism or is paedo-baptism permissible? Should those differences cause brothers to separate? Do the prohibitions in the Scriptures against drunkenness support the views of those who abstain completely or those who argue that alcohol in moderation is permissible? You see, there's a host of issues on which regenerate believers may differ, but what should not cause us to quarrel divisively, for if the Lord has not spoken clearly on that issue, we cannot insist on every believer agreeing with us, for our view might easily be wrong, and in fact we are probably both wrong to one degree or another. And so Paul's advice is to not judge one another concerning these things, to not despise one another over such issues, but instead to welcome one another because the Lord has welcomed us. Now Paul is advocating here for a generous portion of grace. But we can find places in the Scriptures where Paul himself did not extend that kind of grace. So what was different In those places. You may remember that moment when the Apostle Peter altered his own behavior when it came to eating with the Gentiles. Paul articulates this in his letter to the Galatians when he recalls, But when Cephas, meaning Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, or certain individuals came from Jerusalem, Peter was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back. He separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Now you see, Peter understood the freedom from the ceremonial law that we have in Christ. But when members of the circumcision party from Jerusalem arrived in Antioch, individuals who were insisting that the Gentiles needed to bear the mark of the Old Covenant or else they could not be considered Christian, and in fact, until they were circumcised, their company should be avoided at mealtimes for fear of contamination, Peter failed to boldly confront and correct these individuals and his behavior of pulling away 
from the Gentiles negatively influenced the Jewish contingent that worshipped in Antioch, even down to Barnabas, who was also called an apostle, who was instrumental in spreading the gospel throughout Asia Minor. So this was not a non-essential issue in that circumstance. This was not a difference of opinion about a medical preference to those from Jerusalem who came to the Gentiles seeking to influence them about the pros and cons of circumcision. This was a theological heresy that gutted the gospel. Buried within their doctrine was the idea that we need to do certain things to be assured that we are saved, and Paul would not stand for it. He knew that the good news of God is that we are not saved by any work. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And for a moment, the thinking of Peter the fisherman became clouded, and Paul the consummate theologian discerned the heretical air and corrected him. And Paul brings up this incident to the Galatians because they as a whole had fallen victim to this heresy foisted upon them by this same circumcision party. On the one hand, this was a non-essential issue. To circumcise or not makes no difference to God. But as soon as you say that you must or you will not be saved, now it becomes an issue of heresy. So here's the thing about any of these issues. As long as they are not in violation of clear teaching within the Scriptures, carnivore or herbivore makes no difference to God. And as long as we do not elevate them to a status of necessity, thou must, we need to recognize that believers have freedom to act within the confines of their conscience on these things, trusting that they do so, with every intention of honoring the Lord. And if that believer needs correction, then the Lord will surely bring that about. Now Paul raises a variation of this issue when he brings up the matter of special days. I am not going to delve into this matter here, for the conclusion is essentially the same. Paul writes, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. In other words, so long as it does not become a matter of thou must, it is really a non-essential issue, and believers should not be quarreling over it, for they are free to act according to their conscience. But it is what Paul says after this that is important for us to digest. He says, For none of us lives to himself, none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. In dealing with this matter of non-essential issues, Paul is giving the Romans an overriding principle that needs to govern all their thinking as well as ours. 
for these non-essential issues to rise to the level of supreme importance to the degree that we would be willing to foul the fellowship over them, we need to realize that we have lost sight in that moment of what is most important. Because we have not been redeemed so that we can become a law unto ourselves. We have been redeemed so that we can live unto the Lord. The crux of these non-essential issues rising to the point of disruptive argument is when we begin to think too highly of ourselves and believe that we have gained a corner on the market where knowledge and wisdom are concerned. If I'm involved in a knockdown, drag-out argument with a brother over some non-essential issue, I need to be asking myself, am I doing the Lord's work here? Is God being glorified in this argument? Now that does not mean that we are to avoid all issues that are fraught with emotion, but it is to say that if a discussion cannot be had from a biblical perspective, then we are simply engaged in an ideological joust designed to wound the other person. And Paul is reminding us that our lives are to be lived under the Lord. He's reminding us that our entire lives are to be lived under the Lord. For we also die under the Lord. From beginning to end, we were made to glorify God. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that He might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. That thought that our entire lives are to be lived for God's glory will help us to keep non-essential issues from rising to an unwarranted level that interferes with the fellowship we are to enjoy as brothers and sisters in Christ. It will keep us from judging one another and concluding in our own minds that they are not truly redeemed. And it will keep us from despising one another and concluding in our own minds that they are just not worth our time and effort. When the governing principle of my life is that all that I do and all that I say is intended for God's glory, it will seal my lips at the appropriate time and it will soften my heart towards those who are hard to love. And it will also increase my thirst for the Word of God. Not so I can proudly win the argument declaring I told you so, but so that I can become ever more like Jesus, who was considered a friend of sinners and who taught with an uncommon authority. When this governing principle is at work in me, it helps me to see that this person with whom I disagree is not my adversary, is not my antagonist, but is someone for whom Christ died. And while we have different perspectives on certain non-essential issues, this person is still wrapped in the robes of Christ's righteousness and I am in serious error if I entertain the thought that they are outside the fellowship of Christ. And this is why Paul poses the questions that he does in verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. You see, we must never lose sight of the fact that there will come a day when the Lord will set all things to right. 
And in that day, we will discover just how non-essential many of these things truly are. For when we see Him face to face, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory and grace. Now, Paul has not finished with this portion of his letter, but we are finished for today. So let us pause for a moment of prayer.